This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. I want to start with a little talk about, or a little piece from the Pali Canon, from the Nguttara Nikaya, that involves Aga. Aga was a minister to one of the kings in the area that uh, was living at the time of the Buddha. And Aga, he appears periodically. Anyway, he came, uh, Aga, the royal minister, went to see the exalted one. Upon arrival, he greeted him respectfully, and sitting down beside him, spoke to the exalted one these words. It is wonderful, it is astonishing how rich and wealthy, how richly endowed this Megara is, the grandson of Rohana. How, how rich may he be, this Megara, the Rohana's grandson, asked the Buddha. Ten million in gold, O Lord, to say nothing of the silver. Certainly, Aga, that is not to be denied, that that is a treasure, said the Buddha. But this treasure is threatened by fire, water, princes, thieves, and undesirable heirs. There are seven treasures which are not threatened in such a way. And what are they? The treasure of faith and confidence, the treasure of ethical conduct, the treasure of shame, the treasure of dread or fear of blame, the treasure of knowledge, the treasure of generosity, and the treasure of wisdom. These seven treasures are not exposed to the danger of fire, water, princes, thieves, and undesirable heirs. It's kind of surprising, actually. Shame and dread are on the same level of uh, treasure. It's not just an emotion. It's a treasure. They are treasures, which does raise a few questions. So I'd like to talk about some of these um, treasures, a few, the first four of these treasures, and particularly some of the emotional content that we might find in considering these and see if we can understand what we mean, how we could see shame as a treasure. Uh, but let's start with the, um, the first of these, which is the faith and confidence. The word in Pali, the language of the Buddha, is sada. Uh, so faith and confidence, Buddhism is not big on um, blind faith. It, um, faith in the practice is generally based on first-hand understanding, uh, familiarity with a concept. We develop trust in uh, the Dhamma, the precepts, and the, the strategies that we have, the uh, practices that we have, as we find that they are of benefit to us. That's the way we build our faith in our practice. In, in the context of this, we can understand faith also as... Um, a place to rest our trust in, uh, in the development and the evolution of our spiritual path. Uh, one way to view this is that we can take faith or have faith in things that we love, and so love and faith work together and find a, a place of security that resides within, and that is to say uh, the... Um, our, our trust in our own capacity for development of uh, connection with the, the non-material, the spiritual world. Uh, what I'd like to do 
is have a brief guided meditation and invite you to explore this for yourself. And so to kind of operationalize a little bit, um, there's a couple different ways of experiencing faith that you may have had in your lives. Um, I suspect that many of us, if not most of us here tonight, have had some um, experience in something that was of a non-material nature, of a spiritual experience of some sort, of uh, perhaps from childhood, of um, some experience of more, I guess. Think for yourself of something like that. We can also have faith in... um, in our own potential for uh, love and generosity of kindness and these sorts of things when we when we feel this sense of security and rest and repose in acting in ways that are uh, skillful that are helpful and and the feelings that arise from that and knowing that this is the right thing to be doing uh, another another uh, object of faith is um, what they call the three gems, uh, which is to say the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. That is to say that there was someone in history who was able to attain the deepest level of realization and that there's a way to, for us to attain that same sort of thing for ourselves. And there's a community of individuals who are working together and supporting each other in... Uh, in our own spiritual development. So that's the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So when, we, when I go through this guided meditation, I'll invite you to consider your, if any of those resonate with you, um, to take one and just consider that, that moment or the trust that you have or the connection that you feel with these objects of, of faith that give you a sense of confidence in your own potential and your own potential to develop in a, in a way that's wholesome and healthy. So let's start with um, find a comfortable position and um, so you suggest you close your eyes or um, you can look down and half close your eyes. Find your, a place that you experience the breath easily at the nostrils or in the chest or in the diaphragm. Bring your attention to the breath. Feel some relaxation in your, in your face and your forehead your jaw, around your eyes. Just release that tension. And consider a time that you felt or had some experience of transcendence. An experience from your childhood, perhaps or maybe sometime more recently when you had a deeply moving experience 
a birth, for example, falling in love, a time when the mundane world receded and the possibility of something more arose in your awareness. See if you have a feeling that arises as you consider this. Do you see, do you feel an emotion that arises in your chest, in your heart? So two things to consider. One is that the um, the seven treasures, each of them, they, they have a fundamental difference from our uh, mundane, our secular treasures. And that is attention to the treasures, these spiritual treasures, permits them to grow and strengthen and develop. I know if I attend to my worldly treasures, it causes nothing but distress and concern, but it's, that's just the nature of it, that our, the world changes and turns inevitably. And we do have a place of repose that's available to us. And it's a healthy, wholesome thing to do, to consider these treasures and you may find in some moment of distress or difficulty that being able to set that aside for a moment and, and consider these treasures, and we'll do a few of these so you can see which one seems most resonant with you. The other thing is that there's, there's it seems to me there's two things working. One is this faith itself and the reaction or the feeling that arises as we consider our faith. And as I mentioned that we can have faith or take faith and trust in things that we love. And so you may have found as you contemplate the object of faith that you found some feeling of love that arises. And I think this is the, the healthy process of linking with that faith that you have and trust that you have and you find that it's reliable and available for you. So considering the second of these treasures, ethical conduct, in Pali it's called sila. I'm hardly the Pali expert, but uh, it seems to me 
the word sila is used in a number of different ways. Um, it's both the precepts themselves, the, the ethical uh, behaviors that uh, we undertake, it's the doing of these things and the accumulated uh, efforts that we've made in the direction of living an ethical life. Um, so we'll just talk about them in terms of what these principles are. So there's five principles that we undertake in the practice, five ethical um, uh, themes, I guess you could call it, principles. The first is not killing or a commitment to not harming. Uh, generally, it's like non a commitment to non-harming. The goal of this is to uproot hatred. And the positive aspect of this is to say, if we take that as I won't cause harm, so then I commit to uh, cultivation of unconditional love. So we do have unconditional love as a goal. It's a tough thing to achieve at times, I guess. Uh, so we start with what we have, which is a conditional love, that we we have uh, the connections that we have with our loved ones, and we build on that the feeling that that, that relationships are, are like and their best, and expand that and. It, there's a number of practices that we have of, to, to expand that to include those that we don't know, for example, or the whole world, bit by bit, to practice this just loving for its own sake. Um, and the other thing is um, practice non-harming uh, is, is something to consider, actually, on a day-to-day basis. Um, I, I mean... Little things actually are important in this respect. Uh, for example, um, I, I used to be the family bug killer, and I decided I don't want to kill bugs anymore. I mean, sometimes bugs, they're in the house, and you know, spiders, whatever. And so to the extent I can manage to get them outside, I'll do that. It's a pain in the neck, and they always they never know which way to go. Uh, so, yeah, just do the best I can. But this is a commitment I have not to kill bugs. So, second precept is um, not taking what is not given. I commit to not taking what is not given. So this is, okay, the, the obvious is not stealing, but it goes a little further. For example, if there's a dollar lying on the street, it's really not appropriate to pick it up, I don't think. It wasn't given. Certainly your friend didn't walk down the street. Gee, Doug needs a dollar, so I'll put a dollar here on the street. You know, it wasn't done that way. It was someone obviously lost a dollar, so it's not mine. It didn't give it to me. I'll leave it. Maybe the person will come back. The positive aspect of not taking what is not given is generosity. Um, So it's like instead of taking, accumulating, it's releasing. It's the opposite kind of motion. It's also... fun in a retreat setting to really consider carefully what has been given, to look carefully to, sh- to be sure that you're um, really attending to these things of what has been given and what's not really been given, and to draw a strict line around what, how that is. So it gives you a chance in your retreat and walking periods, for example, or in meal times to consider what's given. Uh, the third 
precept is abstention from sexual misconduct. The positive aspect is fidelity, non-harming, developing our inner resolve to abstain from pursuing what we desire. The fourth is abstaining from untruthful or harsh speech. The positive aspect is purifying our thoughts. And the fifth is not taking intoxicants. And the positive uh, aspect is maintaining mindfulness. So, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who's a well-known meditation teacher, uh, talks about uh, kind of a funny story around Sila. He was in meditation retreat, and he was he's a very diligent, hard-working guy that just sits all the time. He was just in a very dry spot, is the way he put it. It just keeps going back to the same ground over and over and over. So, uh. so he goes to an interview to the teacher and says, help me out here. I'm just going through this over and over and over. So the teacher says, Joseph, you should consider your sila. So Joseph says, what I do wrong? <laughs> it's, um, we, we can contemplate our sila. And again, this is one of our treasures, is to contemplate sila either the commitment that we may have to ethical behavior. Another way to take it is when we contemplate Sila, and where I'm leading here is we'll do another one of these guided meditations, is um, consider a time when you made an effort to act in a way that was kind, generous, was thoughtful. Um, uh, You didn't kill a bug. You, You their bug was there, or a critter, and you got it out of the way, or you didn't step on a bug, or whatever. Bugs. Uh, were you a moment of generosity, or a kind word that you may have spoken to someone who needed a kind word? Um, something like that. It, it, maybe something occurs to you as I'm mentioning these things, that you just want to find an event, a, a moment of, of ethical action, You've made a decision and acted in that way. So what we'll do is we'll do the meditation. We'll start out the same way and just consider that and then go through the event slowly and, th- and think of what happened and consider your, the feeling that arises as you consider this event. And we'll, we'll take a few minutes to let this, we'll let this ripen a little bit. Okay? So same practice. So find an upright seat. And uh, close your eyes or rest your eyelids. And locate your breath. Bring your attention to your breathing. And relax your forehead and around your eyes. Relax your jaw. Now picture a time when you had some experience of acting in a way of kindness and generosity, of concern for another. Maybe a time you went out of your way to avoid harming or refrain from a harsh speech. 
a moment of generosity. So these first two treasures, Sada and Sila, can work to support our practice in a healthy way. So our faith in our own uh, inner path leads to a willingness to undertake ethical behavior. And ethical behavior supports our practice, which leads to more faith and so forth, which is a nice spiral. So what's the issue? Well, the fact is it's very difficult to change behaviors, habitual behaviors. When we get stressed or worried, when we're tired or sick or afraid, reactivity can set us off on a path of habitual behavior that's, well, less skillful, I guess, despite our best intentions. When we're in the grip, and believe me, I'm with... (laughs) This is experience talking. (laughs) It's just... You know, you're just stuck in the same hole again. Here we go again. So the fact is that we need allies and support in moments of stress for, uh, to, to strengthen our resolve, to change our habits. And well, anyway, there's a lot of different strategies for this, but the specific um, point of this is there are two, the, these next two treasures are possible source of support for change, which is to say shame, treasure of shame and the treasure of dread. Uh, So in Pali, the words are hiri, H-I-R-I, which is shame, and otapa, which is dread or fear of wrongdoing. So these two qualities, Hiri and Otapa, are called the guardians of the world. This is what the Buddha referred to them as, because they protect the world from falling into widespread immorality. The cause, what what brings these to light is respect for ourself, which is Hiri, shame, and respect for others, which is Otapa. So Hiri has the characteristic of a disgust at bodily and verbal misconduct. So this is shame, embarrassment, concern for our self-respect, concern for consequences of unskillful action, concern for comic, for the comma that accrues from unskillful acts if you are, you know, in favor of comma. But there's also breaching your own values, knowing that this action I'm about to take is not what I wish I could be doing, but I feel like I'm out of control here. So that feeling of, I wish I wasn't doing this, that sense of, I wish things were going differently. 
So otapa is the, the way I understand it is that um, if my teacher was there beside me, would I really want to be acting in this way? The answer is no. So this is a concern for how others may view us. Uh, so it's like a fear of blame, feeling someone you respect would, would not act in this way in this situation, and I wish to emulate my teacher, and so I wish I could be acting in a more skillful way. So one of the interesting things is, well, they're beautiful factors. They are um, these treasures, but the beautiful factors are these mental factors. There's 19 of them, actually. A number of different uh, positive qualities that arise together in a moment of mindfulness, for example. So if any one of them is present, then they're all present. So mindfulness is one. Hiri and Otapa are two other ones. There's a bunch of other ones, which we'll go on to. But um, the idea is that the, a, strat, a, a possible strategy for disconnecting when you find yourself in the grip is to notice that you're, this, is, this is happening. In other words, instead of being angry, noticing that anger has arisen. Instead of being... I'm really pissed off. It's, oh, that feeling has arisen. This is the separation from the experience. I'm not this experience. This experience has arisen. So that means mindfulness has appeared. And since these beautiful factors all come together, all 19 of them, you've also caused these two to arise as well, Hiri and Otapa, which is to say that we have the capability if we can make this noticing happen in the moment, these other tools are available to us to disconnect and uh, get a little bit of space from the intense feelings that this stress can give rise to. Now, we spend a lot of time practicing mindfulness. This is something that people engage in for a long time in an effort to perfect and strengthen our skill with mindfulness. So let me just suggest that similarly we can attend to those qualities of otapa and hiri. And in doing so, we can strengthen strengthen them so that they're more available. And I don't, just speaking for myself, when I'm angry, I have a whole host of justifications for why I'm really angry, and that's a good thing, and it's appropriate, and it's, it's not true. It's never been true, right? For me, when I go back and have to relive this experience, like, oh. And so I think, just personally, it's something that I would like to develop in myself, is to strengthen these qualities. Well, first of all, let's see what they are. So we'll do one more of these guided meditations. And in this one, we're going to take a little indirect path to go see if we can find what does this quality feel like. So we'll do the mindfulness practice. And again, since mindfulness is one of the beautiful factors, Otapa and Hiri will also be present when we attend to, this, to the mindfulness practice. So we'll, 
we'll do the same thing, attending to the breath. That allows mindfulness to arise. And then I'm just going to suggest that you see if you have any sense of concern for your behavior or concern for how others may view you in a wholesome sort of way, not a critical way. We're not here to judge ourselves. It's just, it's like, maybe it's like a feeling of uprightness, of I'm, I'm, it's like impeccable, I can do this. You know, it's like this internal strength. But I mean, I don't want to paint a picture and tell you what it is because I think it's important that we all develop this understanding on our own and see if we can experience this factor ourselves. Okay, so... um, Again, if we uh, find a comfortable seat and uh, rest our eyelids and bring attention to your breath, wherever you experience it, at the nostril, at your chest, or diaphragm. And bring some relaxation to your forehead and eyes. And relax your jaw. So as you attend to the breath, see if there's any quality of of uprightness, of concern for who you are in the world. quality of your acts,
Now consider or imagine that sitting next to you is someone you greatly admire. Someone whose opinion you value. As you consider this person sitting next to you, is there anything that a feeling that arises within you? As you consider these factors, Hiri and Otapa, does it seem that they may support skillful action? Well, I'd like to invite some questions, but before I do that, I just wanted to leave you with one thing as a, as a practice, which is, um, and believe me, it's a work in progress for me, it's, uh, but, it, but um, the, first, the first step in engaging with this is to bring a moment of awareness when we're in, in stress. To, to know, to notice that you feel in distress. And again, it's not that I am being stressed out by you. It's stress has arisen. Put it, give it some space. And it's not a judgment against you. It's not a judgment of who you are or how great you are or anything. It's just circumstances have arisen and has led to a feeling of stress that exists within. That's really what we want to do, is to take, some, take the value judgment out of, out of our reaction and reactivity. That's such an important first step. And then to see if 
as an experiment, just to see if there is any guidance being offered to you, any feeling inside that would help with making good decisions. That's really what I think what we're talking about, is to disengage from habitual practice and habitual behaviors and habitual reactions, first to notice that it's happening, and to see if there's the strength there to act in a little different way. And there's nothing, that's the only way this is going to happen, because we need to all, I do too, believe me, develop new habits and healthier, uh, more skillful habits. So that's the talk. But I would like very much to hear anybody's reaction or thoughts about the guided meditations, in particular about Odabai Hiri. I've heard about this in all the talks I've been to over the years. I've heard it mentioned, but I don't think I've ever practiced it before. So I'm as new to this as you are, and I'm just curious. Did anything come up for you? Any thoughts or any feelings at all? So, well, well, first of all, the, the word shame is, I think, has um, used, I've, okay, used in two senses. Two senses, as there's more than one sense. Uh, there's, shame can arise from a feeling of fundamental flawedness that arises from a narcissistic wound, a primary narcissistic wound, that, that fundamentally I'm flawed, I'm broken, I'm incompetent, Something is basically wrong with me that makes me unlovable. That's, that's this shame that can come up um, it, when there's a breakage of a strong relationship, for example. And that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is a much milder. It's like embarrassment at bad behavior, I guess you could say. So I'm still maintaining some kind of ego strength around this. And I choose to act in ways that are healthier because I'd be ashamed to, that anybody should see me act like a knucklehead. So, okay, here's... All right, so here's the thing, that if you... If shame is a way of, of um, devaluing yourself, that this is punishment for your failings, no, this is... Obviously, you're you're in a cycle, a circle of that's going to take you down. So, well, you know, ultimately, it's about self-protection. That there's, um, you know, a lot of these negative self-stories are created around uh, a way. To, the only way I'm going to be in relationship is if I rigidly monitor my behavior and strictly punish myself for failing to follow the precise straight path, which I can't, but I, I'm constantly criticizing. This is, this is all about creating a sense of self around I'm a permanent self. If I fall out of relationship, I'll be dead. And so the only way to stay in relationship with the, the, care, the mom or dad, really is what we're talking about, is through this rigid self-criticism. Uh, Suffice it to say, this is a not a healthy place to be, founded on an illusion that there is, in fact, a permanent self that needs protection. So, you know, our coming to that realization is not something we're going to go at straight. We're going to deal with, first of all, the 
the self-story around I need to be so rigid, right? So that we re- so ease those self-judgments, be less self-critical. That's such an important process. Although even that, I don't think. So this is a topic in therapy. It's, but I think our spiritual practice will help support the realizations that this self-judgment uh, is necessary. It's really unnecessary. unnecessary? Well, because when, th- through our um, meditation practice and, and contacting our, our self inside in a quiet way without having all this chatter. Okay, so the idea of shame has to do with something other than that kind of... Well, okay, so we... There was one one class of shame is is um, a, a protection around the fundamental narcissistic wound. Okay, so this is one thing. Uh, so the second is the self judgment and the shame that is a tool that's used to maintain this kind of rigidity and behavior and self judgments. So the second kind, and so then the third is considerably more mild. I guess it's a way of of, uh, as Drew put it, it's like this embarrassment. This came out of my head, right? Uh, so I'm sorry we ran over, so uh, thanks very much, and we'll see you next week. Thanks.